This is a previously recorded episode completed in the month of May to honor Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and Mental Health Awareness Month. It was recorded several days before the outrage and protest broke out in response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. We held off on releasing this episode in order to support the Black Lives Matter movement and to avoid taking attention away from the critical issues at hand. The movement for justice and equality is both a relay and a marathon. As we find our place in the revolution, we acknowledge that Asian Americans and Filipinos in particular have been complicit in systems of injustice towards black communities. We stand against racism in all forms. Black lives matter. Everything we have done for our own personal wellness must now be done in order to maintain our resilience in the revolution. We cannot allow ourselves to burn out because opting out of the work against racism can no longer be a choice. We cannot leave the Black community to fight alone just because we feel tired. They have been exhausted, but they do not have the privilege of giving up. Over the past week of listening, learning, and advocating, we are realizing that the intersection of mental health and race are more relevant than ever in the current climate. We hope this episode inspires and encourages you to take care of your personal wellness and to not shy away from hard conversations with your family and community. Welcome to Brown Girl Feels, a podcast on mental health and wellness by and for women of color. My name is Nikki. My name is CK. And I'm Jenny. And And this this is Brown Girl Feels. May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, celebrating the achievements and contributions of Asian American and Pacific Islanders in the U.S., What started as a week-long celebration in 1977 became a month-long celebration in 1990 when President George Bush signed a bill passed by Congress. In 1992, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month was officially signed into law. As you guys know, May is also Mental Health Awareness Month or Mental Health Month. Um, and we will be including a toolkit in the link so that you can access that. There's a lot of great stuff on that. There's um, pamphlets on COVID-19 and your mental health. Um, An important thing to highlight is that one in five people will have a mental health condition in their lifetime. And um, Mental Health Awareness Month is stressing screening. Um, Early screening, just finding out, doing a check-in on whether or not you might be struggling, especially during this quarantine crisis, and we are actually on a Zoom call recording remotely. How does that feel, guys? Ooh, it's different. It's different. This is our first remote podcast recording, but I'm very grateful to technology because I can see all yes, faces. Yes, all these um, Zoom parties. I know, all the Zoom parties. Um, something I've been Zooming about recently with, um, or like web hosting webinars about, has been about um, 
perfectionism, model minority, and the impact that both of those things have on our mental health. And so we're actually going to jump into this conversation surrounding um, both our experiences as um, Asian American women, and then also how that translates into our journey with our own mental health and uh, therapy and, and uh, how that plays a role. Um, and so, I don't know, let's just, let's just get started. Like, let's yeah. talk about our family history. Like, where, where are we coming from? Mm-hmm. Uh, does anyone want to start? <laughs> I, was oh, like, I was like waiting for Nikki. That's totally fine. Okay, fine. I'll go. Sweet. Awesome. Um, so I guess I think we're all children of immigrants, mm-hmm. um, and that is definitely the case for me. Both of my parents came over to the U.S. super young. Um, they have like really hilarious stories about how they came over. So my dad's from Pakistan, and my mom's from the Philippines. Um, my dad did a lot of crazy stuff to get over here. In fact, like, I think he asked some lady to marry him. First, first he went to Columbia. Well, first he was in London. Then he had to try to get from London over to New York. And at that point, he asked someone to marry him so he could get a green card to come over. And I don't actually know how he pulled it off in the end, but he didn't marry that <laughs> And he did end up in the U.S. And he was diving, he was driving, not diving driving a taxi cab for a while, like very, very stereotypical. But my mom came over as a nurse with her nursing class. There was like a shortage of nurses at the time and worked in New York City. And that, in that melting pot, my parents met. Um, And they also always had this dream. My dad had the dream actually to go to California because it was just so glamorized. I think he watched a movie um, with Goldie Hawn growing up and that, (laughs) yeah, it's called The Girl in My Soup. And, he was like, that's it. I need to be by the beach in California. And then that's, um, that's how we ended up here. And I was born and raised in California. LA girl forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my parents actually came here when they were older. So they were in their early 30s in the mid 80s. Um, they both came from Manila. They were both within like the UP or University of the Philippines network. So that's kind of how they knew and met each other. Um, and my dad's family was already here in Eagle Rock, so he was the last to come over. Um, so they decided to come here this way, and now that they're in Eagle Rock, or my parents first lived in like Highland Park, um, my dad went to school at UCLA to further his education, and um, I think at the time he was getting his master's for Asian American studies. Um, and so my mom came with him, and the original plan was for them to go back to Manila, but they decided to stay here and raise me, and we ended up in Eagle Rock. I love that. So my parents came here, yeah, when they were teenagers. Um, let's see. My dad's story is, like, one of, like, the overseas workers' children. So his mom came out, um, and so he grew up pretty much without her. Uh, and she worked out here for, like, a, like wealthy families um, and then was able to get, like, two, two out of three of her kids to come to the States. And then my mom followed, uh, joined her family here um, when she was a teenager also. I think they were both like around seven, 17 or 18, like right after um, finishing high school and like that first little bit of college in the Philippines. Then they both moved over here um, and her uncle is in the Navy. And so that's how she was able to move to the States. And they met through like those Filipino churches like those cultural, like little itty bitty churches and um, yeah, in in LA too, in Eagle Rock and uh, Glendale. And so that's 
where I grew up as well. We're a little LA babies. Northeast um, LA. Hey. <laughs> Which Wait, is like. Both of our parents met in church. Where did your parents meet, Jen? They met at in the Philippines in Manila. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be funny if they were all met in churches. <laughs> no. Quite opposite for my parents. <laughs> <laughs> they met at the club. <laughs> no. I can imagine that your parents meeting at the club. <laughs> no, but that's my love story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word I love that I think so what's really huh oh no go for it oh I was just gonna say what's interesting about us like being like born and raised in LA is that it was like it's such a diverse place mm-hmm. um was there a moment that you realized you were Asian like specifically like I am Asian American or I am like Filipina like was there like that conscious mind shift for any of you ever? So I was thinking about this a lot and I think I categorized it into like four different layers of my life, like different chapters Mm -hmm. of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, First was like in preschool and I don't remember all the details exactly, but maybe like subconsciously it happened that way. Um, But my mom would always tell me that the moment I went to preschool, I lost my Tagalog because I was actually, my first language was Tagalog and I wasn't speaking English until I went into preschool. Um, So I lost my language then, though I can still understand a little bit. Um, But I think that was my first kind of experience realizing that I was different. Um, And then comes elementary. I feel like we all have those stories of like our lunches and our food and I specifically remember being in third grade at our cafeteria lunchroom and my mom had packed me like fish that day and (laughs) there was this group of boys who saw what I was eating and they kind of like oh what's that like why is she eating fish like you know that kind of story that you hear that's pretty common with Asian Americans Um, so then that happened and then once I got to college I feel like that's when more of like my racial and ethnic identity was formed. And I learned a lot more about who I was and, you know, what it meant to be Asian American or Filipino American. Um, But then in contrast to that, the fourth side of it is like when I went to grad school, I was one of the only Filipino Americans in the room of my whole class. So in OT school, I think there were only like two or three of us and the rest of the class, um, you know, were other, other ethnicities and, and um, yeah, there's like 140 of us and only three of us were Filipino. Whoa. I would not have assumed that. That is yeah. such a staggering number. Yeah. What about you guys? Um, for me, I, it was actually a food thing too. Um, so I was mentioning my grandma. And so when I was really young, um, I would actually just like hang out with her. Like she would babysit me at the like mansion that she worked at in Pasadena I like, remember going there with you yo it was our afternoons movies like I remember <laughs> like like coming like turning the corner as like a little like three four-year-old like and then like seeing like all the lights and stuff um but yeah so I remember uh noticing as a young little itty bitty person that when she would cook because she was there as like the cook, like the, as the cook and the housekeeper. Um, and she also raised their kids. It's like your, your very typical, like overseas worker, Filipino mm-hmm. story. Um, 
being like a house girl. So whenever she would make dinner, she would make a separate meal for us. And it was, we'd, we'd have Filipino food and they would have the very like Americanized like meat and potato, they're vegetarian, <laughs> veggie meat and potatoes kind of food. Um, and I remember like really like in my mind noticing like, oh, so like we're, we're having this meal for like dinner and she would never like offer them it or like she like sometimes she would like certain members of the family were down and they liked the Filipino food mm-hmm. but more often than not it was just like this is our food that's their food mm. like and for me that stark contrast was like oh this is it like we're different and that's how like I noticed it was through food yeah I feel like it's a very common story mm-hmm what about you, Nix? You know what? I don't have a moment of knowing like you guys do. And I think it's really interesting because I come from a mixed background and mm. like I never learned Tagalog and I never learned Urdu. I actually didn't even learn those languages, like any parts of them until I got older and mostly from pop culture. Mm. So it's not that I didn't, it's very, when you have two parents who don't speak each other's languages, the dominant language in the household is going to be English. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised by my um, grandparents on my dad's side, the pa- Pakistani side. Um, so I think I got a lot of that cu- culture early on, but then everybody in my school was Filipino. <laughs> so like all my friends were Filipino, but the way hey, I- Hey, that's us. <laughs> honestly, like most of my friends are still Filipino. Um, the, like the culture with the Filipino community is very specific, but also super Americanized. So I also felt very free to like be into like American stuff. And like, I think they kind of um, helped me embrace my Americanness more than my, um, than my grandparents and my like Desi mm. um, side did. Um, so I kind of just always got it from both sides of my family like you're never enough on either side and that's I think it's a common experience for mixed kids it's like well your Filipino side thinks you're not Filipino enough and your Pakistani side like it's just like a weird it's like you never really fit in anywhere and mm-hmm. so I find like pockets and communities of people that feel safe and I always felt safe with like my Filipino American like <laughs> friends at school um, and I was sad because when I went to college, I wanted to have like Desi friends and I was like, oh, I need to have like Indian girlfriends. Like I need to be like the girls on the Bollywood movies. And when I really started to hang out with them, I was like, wait, like, I don't know what they're talking about. They keep talking to each other in like a different language and they're talking about this festival and that thing. And I just felt like, like I couldn't find my niche there. Mm. Um, so I guess that's a feeling of otherness that I would feel constantly from like even the parts of who I was, was kind of like my experience and it's still my experience. But I feel that especially Filipinos are very, it's actually on both sides. Whenever they think you're one of them, they're very like, they accept you. And they're like, oh, she's one of us, she's okay. Mm-hmm. And so like, even though I felt alone and other, I still felt accepted. So it was kind of like a, an interesting mixture of um feelings but it, at my mm-hmm. core I always thought of myself like American and people would say like I would get told that I sounded white or I was like acted white or the vocabulary I used was very white and like and totally and so go figure everybody's got something to say about how you need to be more like this or that but mm-hmm. <laughs> um and to go along those lines we I think mental health was something that we didn't really talk about 
in my culture. Did you guys, and in both sides, did you guys have that experience at all? Mm. Yeah, I, for me, it wasn't something that we talked about. I think thinking of like when I was growing up, like the, like the message that I received as a child regarding like emotions and things like that was <laughs> to not have that. Mm. <laughs> which is funny because I mean like <laughs> Filipinos are very emotive people like when like we we are happy we are happy when we are angry like you know it um but um, emotions other than that like it was it was something that still had to be to a certain extent contained right the best like description for me would be like be strong and don't cause a fuss was the message that I remember growing up. Like I had this internalized fear of being thought of as like Ma'arte and that's like yeah. the Filipino Ma'arte, right? Like I, I was exactly thinking the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Like, and it's funny because it's like, like literally translated as like an art, like an artist. But then like in my Filipino, like my like little Filipino Americanized brain and also the way that it was presented to me and like the slang, the way it's used is like, a drama queen emo- like over emotional mm-hmm. like and so for me that translated to like into being like if you have these if you have strong feelings don't show them and I was like genuinely like that's like probably only recently is that something that I'm learning to not like stigmatize like that it's okay to have strong feelings and to express those feelings um and then the the other bit was um growing up as an, an older sister so like the responsibility I guess of being an ate mm-hmm. is like it kind of shaped me to care for others before caring for myself and so quite often like my personal like mental health would always just I wouldn't think about it I would just like handle the issue handle the issue and don't consider how you actually feel about it because there's no time uh, and because you don't want to be <laughs> over emotional, and so for me, like that's that that is what guided my view on mental health for a really long time. I feel similarly, CK. Um, also, it was a little bit complicated for my family too because I feel like my parents varied with their like with their ability to talk about emotion, more emotions and feelings and things like that. Um, my mom was always more open to it, but that was also her background. Like mm-hmm. she, she studied psychology and she wanted to go down that path of being a psychologist. Um, but on the other hand, my dad doesn't like to speak about his feelings much. And that's something we're all still trying to navigate and figure out like how we communicate with each other, especially when there are more complicated issues and topics to talk about. So growing up, it was always more of like a hush hush. Um, but I had my mom to be like my advocate and someone I can go to for things. Um, but yeah, just like you, I felt like most of the time my needs were kind of, um, shadowed by things that were greater than that. And I feel like whenever I had emotions that were more of like anger, sadness, or these things that weren't so like happy, um, it was this feeling of like, oh, maybe I'm being ungrateful. Like after everything my parents have done for me, like they sacrificed, they moved to a different, like a new place and like they're doing all these things and I can't even feel this way because, you know, maybe like I'm being ungrateful for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
um, as you were saying that, I mean, both of what you guys said totally resonates with me. And like um, the Marte thing, it's like, I realize I have used that phrase in a negative way many times and not even realized what I was doing because here I am, I'm going to be a mental health practitioner and I'm like downplaying people's emotions. Like usually it's a joke. Mm -hmm. um, I call my husband Marthe a lot and it's like, it's a very <laughs> much a joke. It's like, it's like a, but like at the same time, it's kind of how we use the word crazy in the context that is actually totally inappropriate. And I catch yeah. myself well and I don't mean it like that but obviously it can be offensive to people and same thing with Martha like yeah I never really thought about it but definitely had a family um my brother was born later so I feel like I was the youngest girl for a while and I think I took on the role of a tomboy at first because I thought I was like my dad's son um so I was like the tough girl like we took karate and I always like prided myself on being like having like a really um, high pain tolerance, and that kind of translates to, like, they're both so interrelated, the idea of, like, mind over matter, and how, so I always felt like I couldn't talk about emotions, I was definitely not a crier, we didn't cry in our family, we didn't even really say I love you too much, it wasn't like, um, and then we just kind of got over things, like, fights and conflicts and things were never spoken about or resolved it was always like swept under the rug mm -hmm. so, like the dominant message continued to be like you know um we don't talk about our feelings here um and if you have feelings you're wrong like you're not allowed to feel that way like you're sad you're not sad like that was just totally invalidated those feelings you're not sad because you have so much kind of going along with what you said jen about like there's children in africa starving you mm -hmm. should be grateful <laughs> if you're sad, you have a better life um so it, it just that whole idea of like, you're not allowed to have your feelings because of everything I've done for you. That was a big thing. Um, and therapy itself, gosh, that was not even like something I knew existed. Like that wasn't like a resource. Like, I'm like what? People talk about their feelings or just this whole idea that like only white people talk to um, someone about their feelings, they pay someone to listen to them, you know, like you can just talk about it here. Tell, tell the family how you feel. Or pray. Or pray. Or pray. Or pray. Or pray. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a safe space for me to tell you anything about how I feel. Mm -hmm. And what if I need to talk about you when you're not here? <laughs> mm -hmm. It just like, there's like, there was a lot of enmeshment. There's a lot of enmeshment in many minority families because of the collectivist view of the world. Like we do everything for each other and we expect the same in return. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of like familial piety where like elders know better. And like, if you have enough mm. younger person, you should just zip it because you don't know enough. Like somebody knows better. So an elder said this, so that's it. Um, and this was like featured pretty prominently on both sides. So um, I, when I wanted to be a psychologist in high school, my parents were like, nope, there's no money in that. And it's funny because my dad actually has his doctor in psychology, but he practices as a businessman and calls himself a doctor. So, because um, he has a doctorate, but you know, it's misleading and it's just, but he didn't really use it in that way. He definitely used it in a different way. Um, so there's this emphasis to make money and to provide, but our parents came from a place where they were trying to survive and they're trying to make it. And then we come up, we're in a different generation and we get the time and space to feel our emotions. And mm -hmm. so, but they don't understand that because it's like, there's a generational gap in that and there's a cultural mm -hmm. gap. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think um, when I started going to therapy, it was like, 
I wouldn't even tell my parents about it. I wouldn't even talk to my parents about going to therapy. Um, does anyone have like an experience their further with their first therapist that they'd like to share or what it was like going to a therapist for the first time? Hmm. For me going to, th- I went to my first therapy appointment when I was in college while my parents were going through divorce. And so I was like, going through I was like oh we are having the struggles we have a school counselor I might as well take advantage of it and so I went once and I didn't go back Mm. both both my the first two (laughs) the first two therapists the one when I was in college and then the one I went to um I think it was either like right before I got married or right when I got married Mm -hmm. um it was, I, it was very uncomfortable for me because they were both so like clinical, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, I had to do like, I had to do like the little scantron, like check off, like how, like check off all of this. How are you feeling? And what I remember taking away from both of them, because both of them made me do that little checklist. The one in college really wanted to talk about like, my parents' divorce kind of thing. And then the other one, that first visit, he didn't talk about anything. He just looked at my thing and just gave me this grade of low self-confidence. Like, and he was like, okay, well, it looks like from this, you need to work on your confidence issues. So uh, work on that and then we'll talk next week. And I was just like, but how and why? Like, give me more. Like, I really don't know where you're coming from. Um, And so it really, for me, it felt like they were focusing on deficits and that like, really hurt I was actually like hurt like leaving that I was just like oh gosh like okay so like the first therapy appointment in college all I talked about were all these terribly sad things was not given any tools to reframe was not like anything like that this is like second therapy appointment like a couple years ago uh with a different therapist very like extra clinical just told me that I had zero confidence and I needed to work on it and like sent me out back into the wild and I was just like this is this is this is terrible like I don't want to do this ever again mm-hmm. um so that was yeah those are my first experiences thankfully I've got a therapist that I love now I'll <laughs> tell you about her later but I mean yeah like it it was very it was also very hard because I didn't tell anybody about those two first therapy appointments mm-hmm. I kept both of them a secret mm-hmm. um both mm-hmm. because like I felt I felt unsafe talking about going to therapy. Like it wasn't normalized enough yet. Mm-hmm. And then second, because I left both of them feeling so ashamed that like, I know people would be like, oh, how was it? How'd it go? And I would just be like, oh yeah, like it sucks. Like I didn't know how to vocalize those things and talk about mental health in that way yet because it wasn't the norm for me. Man, um, I feel that so hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was the same way. So for me, I was also a freshman in college and I, mm-hmm. I talked a little bit about it during the Mother's Day episode when I had like a panic attack at UCLA and I, I had so much shame around it too. And I actually was supposed to be studying for some like chem final that night that I was going to have it. But I told everyone that I was meeting up with it. I was oh, like, oh, I'm having an asthma attack. Like I can't meet with you guys right now. Mm-hmm. Like it was so hard for me to talk about it. Um, and then, so the doctor recommended like, oh, why don't you check out their program for, for therapy? And so I went, I went once and I never went back um, because I felt the same way. Um, 
well, first of all, like I went in there and the girl already gave this disclaimer that she was recording our session because she needed hours or something like that. And to me, it was like, what? Why am I being recorded? And I just remember being in there and crying and not being able to say anything and then just just leaving and not really gaining anything from it. Um, but luckily, UCLA, um, their Filipino organization on campus, it's called Samahong Filipino. Mm-hmm. They have a program called like Spear Counseling where you would meet up with your designated counselor throughout the year and throughout every quarter and kind of talk about anything you wanted to talk about, whether it was like school or culture, um, like social, anything going on in your life. So that kind of helped me process things mentally throughout college years. But it wasn't until after college that I actually found somebody who looks like me and, well, I mean, everyone in some Filipino looks like me, <laughs> but when that resource was, was no longer available, I was able to find someone who was also Asian American, second generation. She was actually from Glendale, La Crescenta area. Um, and I felt like being able to talk with someone like that who knew my experiences and my, you know, my cultural experiences and could get me um, made a huge difference than the very first time I was in therapy when I met with this random person at the counseling center who was recording me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was definitely not the best first experience. <laughs> funny, like, I feel like I definitely, I didn't have a bad first experience with therapy. Um, and then mine was also later in life. I think none of us sought it early <laughs> because it wasn't really a thing. Um, but it was um, someone within my insurance network because I didn't want to pay a lot of money. And like the the person who called me back with happened to be like um, a white elderly American gentleman. So like basically like the farthest away from being like me that there could be. And he probably is like had a psychodynamic style um, because he literally didn't say anything or tell me anything. He was, he was therapeutic because he was listening, but I just told him my life story with no filters. And it was like, for the first time, I was like, Whoa, this is what happened to me. This is my life. I went through a lot of shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He talks about it. It's like, even our best friends, like we talk about happy things. Like we are not told to talk about our life in a perspective. So it definitely gave me perspective. And I was like, can you give me homework? Like I want Mm -hmm. to so he gave me some homework and I went back to see him a couple of times. Nothing notable. Like he wasn't bad. He wasn't good. It was just like we moved mm-hmm. out of there. And I was like, okay, let me try to find a therapist again. And I've been trying to find a therapist for a while. Um, my latest therapist, who is actually a female African-American, um, she discharged me from therapy because she said I was like too good. And I was thinking to myself, hmm, this is not, <laughs> this is like not right. I think what happened is that since I was going through my insurance again, you have to have a diagnosis to bill. So like she probably didn't have anything to bill for. So like thinking about it later, but like many, many of my colleagues in my um, program with me, MFT program with me have therapists who haven't discharged them. And I'm sure that they're at the same functioning level as me. Plus I'm going to have a lot to need to talk about once I start seeing more clients because you see a lot of trauma and deal with a lot of trauma. Um, But I still haven't found a therapist, long story short. Um, and because that lady let me go and I went to see another lady and I really liked her. She was actually Italian, but like the vibe was really good. Um, but 
I didn't want to pay out of pocket. So it was like, dang, like I still have to keep looking. So it's really tricky to find a good it's therapist. It's hard. I'm in the same boat. I mean, that therapist was like four or five years ago. And yeah. it's been my goal every year to find somebody new. But yeah. it's, it's like dating. <laughs> it is. That's what I say. You have yeah. to move around to find your therapist. Yeah. The most important thing I think that they like that we've learned about it is that like you, if you have an authentic relationship with this person, you can tell them, hey, this isn't working for me, or hey, something you said offended me mm-hmm. in the last mm-hmm. meeting. If you don't have that type of relationship with your therapist, then you probably should see someone else because then you're not really being able to be real or honest if you're like filtering yourself too much and maybe mm-hmm. there's this person that doesn't make you feel safe and it might not be their fault, mm-hmm. but you need to find someone that makes you feel safe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Um, yeah, so my therapist, she's, I love her. She's a, she's a, what is, she's, well, I'm trying to, I'm like trying to describe her. She's like, she's not young, but she's not old. Like, <laughs> she's just so chill. I think, I think definitely like vibes is like, mm. definitely yeah. like gel together. She's a white woman who is like, so chill like and I do like you know um I I think I think when we're thinking about like you know being women of color looking for therapists I think for sure like of course you know yourself you know if you're going to be more comfortable around somebody who actually does look like you and if that will allow you to open up better I've learned that I feel like my starting point at least is I feel more comfortable with a woman therapist than I do with a male therapist so I know that much about myself um, and, uh, then after that, then it's just like, all right, let's see, like our conversation, how will it go? Um, like, do, do I feel like safe to talk about whatever, even if it is talking about like, uh, you know, things that might have been like, you know, racially based, like, um, like microaggressions or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so my therapist is like very, uh, she definitely has like cultural humility, um, which is nice. Like I've never felt like, uh, there's never been like this like power disparity where I felt like she's like talking down to me or whatever. Like it's always felt like very chill. Like I'm talking to like a friend who just has so much knowledge and resources and is really good at like reframing things. Um, and so, yeah, like I'll just like bring her, like I'll just literally come through and I'll just be like, I need help with this. Boom. Like X, Y, and Z. And she'll like be like, Oh, okay. Well then like <laughs> we'll just dig in. Um, and so, yeah, definitely finding somebody that matches, like, my personality was really nice. CK, do you know her modality? She, oh, I have not asked her modality, but she oh. is LMFT. Mm. Oh. Which, because most, most therapists use a fusion of different stuff, but some people specialize. And uh, I've noticed that Asian Americans are drawn to CBT because. I think she's CBT. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, no, I think CBT. she is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for, I think for me, that's so helpful because it's like, I need something practical. Like I, of course, need a safe space to share feelings, but I can't, that's not enough for me. Like I, and I need like a framework. And so that's like, I think what's some of the things that I've appreciated the most is like learning how, like she literally gave me like sentence structure to talk about feelings like when I don't when I'm having strong emotions that I haven't learned to vocally process and so like stuff like that so I'm pretty sure she's CBT how do you all even afford therapy I I feel like that's my main barrier and I feel like many can 
you know, feel that way too. I'm very lucky that the, the school thing that I work for values it. So surprisingly, the Christian school, uh, whatever, organization values, values therapy for its teachers and pastors. And so they have like a, like a system thing for us to go through. Yeah. So I, I have like a rebate, which is so nice. You know what? If you're not sure, you can always ask because a lot of therapists offer sliding scales. You just have to tell them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They won't know like automatically that you're tight on a budget. And and, like if you start treatment with them and you're like, hey, like this is like a little expensive for me. Is there any way you put me on a sliding scale? They can, you know, they could say no, but they could say yes. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I just think it's just like searching, researching. And, you know, I'm still doing that too because, you know, therapy is expensive. But, you know, sometimes you get what you pay for because, yeah, yeah but I mean. <laughs> no, that is true, though, because, I mean, I I love my therapist and I have no, I have no reason to look for another one on her end. But I have been, like, curious to be like, okay, like, I wonder if I could find a therapist who is maybe, like, Filipina and we can, like, dig deeper into more of these, like, things that are rooted very deeply within, like, stuff, like generational trauma and Mm -hmm. like the immigrant like experience and being second generation because I know like I can talk about that with my therapist but like to have somebody who like literally 100% knows what I'm talking about um so that's so I'm very limited to the therapists that are on the list and so far I haven't seen somebody who identifies the same as I do um and so yeah so very lucky that I have the therapist that I do have but yeah, it is like it's tricky to find because it is uh, it is limited um, by financial <laughs> financial ability. Yeah. So I guess I'm hearing you guys say that it's it's not necessarily about the culture of the therapist. It's more about like the personality and the methods and the ability to hold a safe space for you. Does that sound right, or is it more of a factor the culture? than I realize. I think it de- I think it just depends. It depends on who you are. Who I you think, are. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you had life experiences where you were very much harmed, like you know, you've you've experienced uh like racial based trauma, you're not gonna open up as easily to yeah. you know uh X, Y, and Z or whatever. Um so yeah. I like the analogy of dating that we were using earlier because I think that's a big factor there because it's like there is no rule about it like should you date without outside of your culture or should you not like it's kind of that but it's like oh that didn't matter as much as who the person was I think I think that's what what I was thinking the same thing with um therapy too because I've heard a lot of people say like you know give your therapist three tries and I know people say that about dating too they're like three days (laughs) you don't know by the third date then it's a no, like kind of like that. So, I mean, we could apply some dating principles to finding therapists because I mean, you'll tell your therapist things sometimes that you won't even tell your partner. Yeah, very true. Relationship, like, yeah, you have to feel it. I know mine is like, I feel so, I feel so savage. I'm like one and done, one and done. (laughs) No, that's actually- We were young, CK. (laughs) We, We were young. We were yeah. young. We were 18. I mean, um, I think the goal is for everyone to find a therapist that's a lifer, you know? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. That 
stick with and they to see grow with life. Yeah. yeah. Comes to your wedding, comes to your baby shower. I mean, you know, if you invite them, but <laughs> yeah. But like at least you can feel like you feel like that connected to them. Like Yeah. They're like a fixture in your life and you like after you've been with someone for years, so I hear, although I haven't mm. had them, it's just like they get you. Yeah. I guess I'm still looking for the one. <laughs> Yeah, me too, girl. Me too. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> she, she's out there. She's out there. <laughs> Come find me. Oh I need God. a therapist. Oh, man. That's hilarious. We should create like a term for it, like, like um, single for ther- therapist. Single. I don't know. <laughs> oh man, we will. We we need to. We need to think about this. <laughs> oh my word. Uh, it's interesting though, like how our therapist journeys have been like, I don't know, like, yeah, they've, they've been affected. I don't know by like these stigmas that we grew up with surrounding mental health. Like the fact that I couldn't talk to any, like I didn't have anyone to talk to when I was in college or, you know, Mm -hmm. just newly married um, about how to find a therapist and like, what do I look for? Like I, like I already had all these stigmas where it's just like, oh, keep it hush hush. Like therapy yeah. is something that you don't talk about. Like, yeah, like what we were saying. I feel like there was just a lot of shame and guilt, you know, within Asian American families to talk about mental health. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are what are some of the stigmas that you guys like? If you could break any stigma, what would it be? I think you're saying it right now, honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Thing that I was like, that's literally what I was The thinking. shame, the guilt, maybe some pride mixed in there. It's mm-hmm. just the fact that like people see therapy as something that only sick people mm. have. Like that's the connotation. Like you only go to a therapist if you're crazy, if your life's not together. You only see a marriage counselor if your marriage is about to disintegrate. That is absolutely not true. Or maybe it's true because our our society makes it so, but that's not like accurate as to what therapy is meant to be. Um, I actually was seeing uh, like a lot in the community, like posting about it on like Instagram and someone had said, um, saying that you don't need to go to a therapist because you're not crazy is kind of like saying you don't need to go to a gym because you're not fat. <laughs> Just the whole idea. It's like, oh, aren't a lot of the people at the gym actually fit? And yeah. why are they fit? Because they go to the gym, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> For me, it's like, yeah, like a, I, I, I call it like getting an oil change. Because like when I think about my minds and my emotions, I can compare it to like a car where it's like, like we can we can keep running like we can keep running but eventually I'm like gears are gonna start grinding and things aren't going to like work and so it's better to get your oil change as soon as you notice like hey it's about time than like when your car's already broken down and like it's just something that I don't know it's like the maintenance of it yeah or for me I I always tell myself like you can't pour from an empty cup Mm-hmm. And one of the ways I feel it is, you know, fulfilling that need to, to see a therapist or like talk about mental health. Yeah. And honestly, I noticed this, that like safe spaces to talk about things that are bothering you are scarce. Mm-hmm. Many times if we want to talk to our friends about something that our husband is doing to annoy us, like that friend might hold on to that information and like feel resentful against your partner. And then once you've gotten over it, like they still have those feelings. And I've actually Mm. seen that happen a lot. And that's like, that's some classic enmeshment, but still like the whole thing is 
the fact that like a therapist is a non-biased person who can handle all your shit and you can unload on them and then Mm -hmm. won't like become enmeshed with you holds boundaries helps you hold boundaries helps you self-examine so that you can see yourself more clearly and we all have those moments when we call a friend and we're like I need to vent or I need to talk or I need to like we're we're offloading that pressure on other people in our lives Mm -hmm. when there is a place where you can do that with someone who's trained to do it plus can give you some education to help you so I see it as it's just like working on your mental health which you can do like at home you can do it at home you can read books you can self-examine, you can even like, yeah, there's like all kinds of self-help books and things like that that do that for you. And like people can manage it that way too. But obviously like, uh, it's like having a personal trainer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I just wish it were more accessible for everyone. Personal trainers are really expensive. People will spend for them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So true. Well, that can be that that is our there we go we've got our thing if we can change anything (laughs) accessibility stigma yeah just that people know that like hey people who are high functioning go to therapy too Mm -hmm. not just something that only people who are having breakdowns need to do like it's something that can be good for everybody yeah sometimes the people who have it together are the ones who need it the most too Mm -hmm. absolutely totally and I think I think having more and more conversations like this breaking down the stigma will also I think improve the accessibility um because then the more we talk about it the more we we can also find resources from each other Um, you know, like maybe somebody knows of a therapist who does have a good sliding scale or like somebody knows about like someone who's doing like maybe holding group therapy sessions for like a really great price, but we won't know about it unless we talk about it. Mm -hmm. By the way, I've heard that group therapy, I haven't experienced it myself, is like one of the most life-changing, wonderful experiences in life. Like everyone keeps saying it, you have to do it. And it's, and it sounds so intimidating. <laughs> I know. I would I would not be surprised though. I feel like I but can you know see that. Saying that like once you go into group therapy, there's always someone that rubs you the wrong way. And you can count on the fact that they're like replaying something about your parents that you like have un not solved. And yeah. like trigger you. And like it's just like intensive work, but like in the best possible way. Um, but it doesn't always happen because you might have a bad group leader, but like theoretically, it's like such a healing experience. Mm. But it intimidates me because like group intimacy, I don't know, like I want to choose who I'm intimate with and you don't get yeah. to go into that room and these people are like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like boot camp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good description. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, just like thinking about think like as I've been thinking about mental health and just being Asian American there's a lot where I can see like there's a lot of stuff that I'm grateful for I think Mm. um like coming from a culture that is collective while growing up and I think that's where like that's where like the rub is though like coming from a collectivist culture growing up in an individualist Mm. society And it's so interesting seeing like how, I guess, like sometimes I always wonder to myself, like, what would I be like if I grew up in the Philippines? Like, how would I be different Mm. than if I were growing up in the States? Um, Or even in a different city? Because I mean, I feel like we're so fortunate enough to have grown up in Eagle Rock, Glendale area where there's a huge Filipino population. Yeah, 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 definitely. Or even in a different city. Um, 
I don't know. And, and while of course there always are going to be like things that I'm like not used to, um, like, I think there will, there will always still be things like, like that I'm really grateful for. Um, because even though like, even though like my family didn't like at first understand the impact or importance of like mental health or going to therapy and things like that. Um, I don't know, like, I, I think like knowing that they still have my back is something, um, that I do like really appreciate. Um, and then even now, like with, like, with like this next generation like of cousins, like Kevin and I are always talking about it. We're always like, okay, cool. We're, we get to set the precedent now, like, like our generation, like we're gonna make sure that we don't make like the same mistakes, like that enmeshment, like all of these like expectations, like we're gonna take what's really good about this collective culture of like being there for each other and always like, you know, being responsible for each other in like a healthy way. And like, and that's what we want to carry on forward. So I don't know, like, what's your favorite part of like being Filipino? You know, I was thinking when you were saying that just about Filipinos in general and like what Filipino people as a culture went through, mm -hmm. we were colonized multiple times over by different races, like just plundered. And then we yeah. like went out and immigrated all kinds of places like Filipino people are tough for a reason. That's why we have this coping mechanism of putting down like a quote unquote weakness because it was like survival mode because we mm -hmm. had to live through so many traumas as a culture. And then um, that's why Filipino people are so adaptable too. And I realized that's why it was easier to get along with um, some of my Filipino friends because we were so Americanized. But the reason we were so Americanized was because our culture knew how to adapt to the dominant culture well, to fit in, Filipinos are such hard workers. They're so like resilient and strong, like to the kind of work ethic that the Filipino people I know have. I'm just like, where else have I ever, I don't see that. Like so many of my coworkers will work like double shifts. And the other day they asked me to stay extra. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. Like, I don't know if you guys do that with kids. Like, I just don't get it. Where do you get your energy? Um, mm -hmm. but Filipinos also have this really, and I love this about Filipinos, they're always making jokes. Like, they're mm -hmm. the, like, the, and I think it's their way of, I think I might have said this before, whistling while they work. Mm -hmm. they're, so <laughs> they're so good at integrating work and play. Um, and I think they find that community and that tight knit group with each other. And so they all like become a collective therapist group. Maybe we're all doing like group therapy together. <laughs> But we I don't like see, yeah. we don't like the idea of therapy because we're giving therapy to each other to within each other. our in group, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like that white person is not allowed to do that for us because mm -hmm. they don't. But like, say you're their therapist Filipino and the daughter of their friend, they'd be like, okay, yeah. well, I can talk to her about my feelings. Like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know, but it, it just it, that just came to mind. Like, um, there's so many amazing parts about being, and like also the food. That would be another favorite. I'm sorry, I'm taking all the too many. I know, I feel like you took it all, Nikki. Okay, okay, okay I'm going to stop. No. <laughs> I agree with all of the above. <laughs> but yeah, just, you know, being part of such a warm and welcoming community. And it's like whenever you go somewhere new and you see someone else who's Filipino too, I feel like there's just mm -hmm. this instant connection. And yep. you're more likely to like, 
acknowledge each other, even become friends. And it's like, hey, you're Filipino too. Me too. Wow, you life know? is hilarious. <laughs> like mm-hmm. my grandma from Australia would come. She's a Filipino. And she would literally find a Filipino anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, that's and my parents. <laughs> and she like she asked someone like, "Are you Filipino?" And they said yes. And she said, "Thank God." That's <laughs> <laughs> like that. like so so happy. And you don't they don't even want anything from that other person. Mm-hmm. They just want to know they're not alone. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I I wonder if that's like a thread with like diasporic com- like mm-hmm. communities because for sure Filipinos that's like a diaspora for sure. Like we're mm-hmm. all over the place. Yeah. And so, yeah, to know that, to know you're all over the place and then find somebody like when you're, when you're away from home is like, it's really magical. It's like, oh, piece of home. Yeah. <laughs> Do your parents still call the Philippines home? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. crazy. Just mm-hmm. Cause if they've lived the majority of their life in the U.S., technically this should probably be their home by now, but yeah. it's, it dies hard. Mm-hmm. Philippines will always be home. Yep. Yep. That loyalty. That's another Filipino trait. Loyalty. I do mm-hmm. not know another loyal individuals. Like mm-hmm. even point of blindness, but just so fiercely loyal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, totally. Ride or die. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh man. Well, I like dang, I learned so much from this conversation. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Proud. Proud to be my Arthe. <laughs> Loki. Huh? Hashtag that. Let's take that back, guys. Yeah, yeah. There's actually there there are some um there's a couple like Maldita. Phil- Maldita, yeah, yeah. There's some Filipino yeah, designers funny. too that are like taking back like that. reclaiming these phrases that were used to like kind of like pigeonhole us, especially those of us who grew away, like grew up outside of the Philippines. Like, yeah. I, I should share them with you, but yeah, they use like maldita, like maarte, like all of those phrases on like shirts in really cool ways and stuff. So, yeah. Well, ladies, from our quarantine little rectangles, mm-hmm. <laughs> we hope if you are listening that you uh, enjoyed joining us and hanging out with us mm-hmm. uh, and that you, I don't know, just never what, never downplay your. <laughs> reclaim Arte, reclaim Maldita, do it for your mental health. Be proud of being Asian American. Oh yeah. Feel your feelings, go see a therapist maybe, Mm -hmm. Filipino therapist, they're out there guys. (laughs) They're out there and if you can't find one just wait because Nyx will be one very soon. (laughs) This is very true. Very soon. (laughs) Yes. All right well until next time this is Brown girl girl feels.